before we get started, go ahead and, and, and let's, let's pray together. Father, we, we know that apart from your spirit moving in our hearts, we are unable to hear what you have to say this morning. And so we pray that your spirit would move, that as we approach your word, we would do so with humility, we would do so with desire, that we would do so with life that comes by your spirit to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if, you, if you will, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. We're going to be spending our time there. Uh, uh, and let, let's, let's go ahead and, and stand and read uh, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Perhaps a familiar story to many of you, perhaps not. Um, and so, so let's read it. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Seleom, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, This man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. And you can be seated. I don't know why, but, but for some reason, whenever we have standalones, and I'm, I'm preaching a standalone, it, it seems like the last few that I've preached have, have come back to suffering. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know why God has done that, why the Lord has, has, is placing that on my heart. But what I do know is that when you, when you preach about, when you talk about suffering, when you talk about pain, um, you can't do it with just sort of just happiness, just this superficial sort of happiness. Um, but, but also, we can't do it with this sort of defeatism. We can't, we can't come to it like that. We have to come to the text solemnly, but with, but with strength. 
Um, and, and so, so we, we have to do that as we, we talk about this text, as we talk about pain. Uh, I had a, a teacher uh, once, he was a, a coach of mine at, at the small private Christian high school uh, that I went to. Uh, and he, he, began, he began to tell us that really one of the ways that he thought that you moved out of childhood to adulthood, and perhaps some of you have experienced this, one of those marks is that you see that bumper sticker. You know the bumper sticker I'm talking about, right? Stuff happens. Uh, you see that bumper sticker, and all of a sudden it doesn't seem funny or kind of pessimistic. You see t-shirts that say life is pain and then you die and it doesn't seem really morose anymore. Uh, it, it just seems about right. Yeah, that's, that's about it. Um, in, in that moment, you've, you've dispensed of the childish romantic notion that suffering doesn't happen to me. That suffering happens to those people over there. It happens to them, but not to me. You dispel of that. You, you, you're no longer caught up in, in that blind romanticism. Uh, but at the same time, it seems like in that moment, you become cynical. You become a pessimist, defeatist in nature. It's only bad. And you hear those people. It's just going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And then, and then we'll die, and maybe the good stuff will come. But... Um, but for now, that's life, is, is pain. And, it, and, and you're forced with this, this question, which am I going to choose? Am I going to be a romantic and set myself up? Or am I going to be a cynic, a pessimist, and, and, and not actually live life? Or are those the, the only two ways? And, and what the Bible says is no. What Christianity says is no. There's, there's a third way. There's a third way, and, and we see that way unpacked in this story. Uh, as, as I was in my usual internet routine perusing through so-called news websites, um, I came to a particular story uh, tucked underneath uh, Sunday evening's events, um, hidden neatly there, and, and the headline was this, and even just reading the headline, I, I was I was shook. Uh, the headline said, um, four-year-old runs over, kills 16-month-old sibling. So I uh, clicked on the link because I have to for some reason. And, and the story was this, that a man uh, in Texas was with his four-year-old son, his 16-month-old daughter, it was just after church. They always go to visit their family after church. They have big family gatherings. He left the key in the truck, and he had his kids outside. And for whatever reason, he needed to run back into the house. Um, and if you're a parent, you've had this experience. And he ran back into the house. And when he was inside, he heard the truck start. And he ran outside. To find that his four-year-old son had turned the key and accidentally knocked it into neutral. And by the time he was there, it was too late. Um, and then just below that was a man in Sanford, actually, who was working his, his normal job. Um, he worked at a metal company. 
and, and he was using a forklift to lift these bales of copper onto, um, and maybe some of you heard this, um, on, onto just shelving, I guess. And it's something that he does all the time, all the time. He's worked there many, many years. It's, it's his father-in-law's company. Um, and for some reason, and it was very interesting, one of the co-workers said this, uh, the bales, when you put them up there, they're so heavy, they never shift. They never shift. But for some reason, they shifted. And it rolled, and it, it fell on him and, and killed him instantly and left his wife widowed and his, his children without a father and, and left his father-in-law, who owned the business, wrecked. Right? Or, or another one, and this is the last one because our, our souls can't, can't bear it. Um, similar to the first story, uh, a man, and I he- heard this either, uh, I, re- I don't remember the source, but I just remember the story. Um, a, a man uh, got into his car, um, was in his garage, in his truck, didn't see that his, uh, his six-year-old daughter had run behind the truck. He backed up over, hit her. She fell down. He, he realized what had happened. He, he got up, out of, he turned off the truck. She sprung up, ran to him, saying, Daddy, Daddy, why? And, and then just collapsed in his arms and died. That's, that's the question, isn't it? Why? Daddy, daddy, why? Pain, suffering, why? It's the great, it's the problem of pain. C.S. Lewis wrote a book by that title. Um, Please do not ever think that I'm clever enough to come up with anything. Um, And certainly not that. C.S. Lewis wrote a book about pain and he attempted to do what so many have attempted to do. And isn't this a big question? Isn't this the question that keeps coming up? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? What is the biggest what is the biggest hiccup that people have when coming to Christianity? If God is all powerful, why doesn't he stop it? And if he's all loving, why does he permit it? Why? And that's the question that the disciples here pose. They come and they see this man born blind. And, and what do they ask Jesus? Why? That's essentially what they ask. The, the actual question is, who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? What's the root of that question? Why? Why has this happened to him? They're trying to find out. They're trying to work out within their own minds a reason, a, a sense for this. They're trying to make sense of suffering. And, and we all do that. We all do that. If you, if you remember, how could you forget Newtown? What are the questions? Well, why did he have a gun? Uh, Where were the mental... We want to know why. Uh, And in the root of that question is this. Who can we blame for this? And they don't even mask that. They just want to know. Was it this man who sinned or his parents who sinned? And so there are two. There are two questions or there are two... uh, assumptions about the causes of sin that people have that, that, that we see unpacked right there in, those, in that question. Was it him or was it his parents? There are two approaches 
to suffering that people take. The first approach is guilt. The reason that I am suffering is because of some sin I've committed or something that I've done. It's my fault that I'm suffering. That's what they want to know. Is it his fault that he's suffering? Guilt. And, and you become overwhelmed with guilt. This happens so often when people are suffering. Their hearts are overcome with guilt because they feel like, if I had just done this differently, right? why didn't I put the keys in my pocket? Why didn't I look back another time? Why did we wait? Why didn't we wait? Guilt. Blame. The, the other approach is it's, it's blame and, and anger. I'm suffering and it's their fault. It's, it's that fault. It's this system or it's that person. You did this to me. I would not be suffering were it not for this. And we felt that. I'm sure we feel that more Often than not, there are tears of suffering. And sometimes it's unfair to talk about the loss of a child or death or, or a mass shooting. Because in some ways in our hearts, it diminishes the everyday suffering that we all feel. The suffering that comes when there are two weeks left in the month and, and one week left of money. Suffering that comes when you've been let go. The suffering that comes when you've been betrayed by a loved one, a dear friend. We say, well, nobody died. Or, but there's, even in that, there's, there's this natural response. And the response is, I shouldn't have been fired. I did my job Perfectly, He had no right. This was a conspiracy against me. He's been plotting against me the whole time. She's been plotting against me the whole time. There's blame. And then sometimes there's this weird mix of both. You hear about children whose parents have divorced. Asking themselves what they did wrong. While at, at the same time angry their parents. The most remarkable one, you hear of young women, sometimes men, but in our culture we have to be honest, it's more often women who've been abused. And they have this weird mix of hating themselves and hating their abuser. It's both. But it's still the same. Why? Is it because of them or because of me? And, and what's interesting is that sometimes we take these assumptions, we take these reasons, and then we flip them around, we make them a positive ideology, and we build ideologies off of these assumptions. So, for example, one group, and we could call them liberal, would say they would take the blame and anger route. They would flip it on its head and they'd say, look, the problem with the world is that there are systems and structures that are 
intentionally designed to hold people down. And there's truth in that. And so the positive assessment is if we can change those structures. So if we can just make, for example, government big enough. We can alleviate suffering by removing those structures. And then there's the other approach, which we could, again, call conservative. That it flips that idea that the blame is on you on its head and makes a positive assessment that if you will just do what you are responsible for doing, if you will work hard and be all that you can be, that you will succeed. All right, those, those titles are extreme and, and generalizations. They're for the sake of just categorizing. But you know it. There are people who say, look, if... If you just have more faith, you'll get better. Or if you just work harder, you'll get that promotion. Or if you will pick yourself up and stop blaming other people, then you won't be in the situation that you are. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. But that's all based on that same presupposition that suffering happens because of some sort of personal level sin. Either you have done something or someone else has done something to you. Uh, blame, guilt or blame? Guilt or anger? And so they asked Jesus, which is it? And there's one thing that Jesus cannot ever be accused of, and that's being too simplistic. Because what does he say? He says, neither. He says, it's neither. It's not that this man has sinned that his parents have sinned. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is immediately saying, look, I'm not going to answer your question. Instead, I'm going to get to the heart of your question. He does this a lot. And this one actually seems a lot like Luke chapter 13. Uh, and, and so if you, if you want to turn there, you can. Um, I'll just briefly summarize Luke 13, the first part of it. Um, Jesus is, is talking with people about these Galileans who have been killed because uh, of, of Pilate's sin, right? And, and Jesus says to them, look, do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than you? And if that's why this happened, well, the answer is no, that's not the case. In fact, he doesn't say that only. He says, in fact, what you need to do is repent now before you perish likewise. And then there's a story of a tower that falls on people. Why did it fall on, on those people? Why is this tower fallen? Is it because of their sin? Is it because they're sinners? And he says, you think that the tower's falling because of that? No, repent. In other words, you, what you need to be expecting is towers to fall on you because your sin is great. What's the presupposition that's being made here? It's not simply that bad things happen to people who deserve it. It's more than that. It's that God owes us. Freedom from suffering. God owes us. Think about that for just a second. Why do you get offended when someone says something negative to you? 
is because they're wrong? Not usually. I mean, they may be right, they may be wrong, but their correctness, their accuracy in the statement is not why you're hurt. You're hurt because you think too highly of yourself. You're hurt because you don't have an appropriate understanding, a biblical understanding of who you are. Uh, If you knew who you were in sin, and if you knew who you were in Christ, when somebody criticized you, you'd say, well, you have no idea. You don't know the half of it. I'm all that and more. (laughs) And at the same time, I'm forgiven. So, so how, how can, if, if that's your spirit, if you know who you are in your sin and you know who you are in Christ, how can your, how your feelings be, I mean, hurt to the point of bitterness? They can't because there's perspective. Okay, that's a small length. Let's, let's, let's blow it up. Let's, let's go big, right? You're suffering when you ask, why God? Why am I suffering? What you're saying is, I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything to warrant this. Think about the entire storyline of the scripture. You have this God who made everything. And just because he wanted to and because he is love, he created you. He sustains you. He gives you life and breath. And in return, all you owe him, you see, you owe him Allegiance and obedience. And yet, in the midst of overwhelming evidence that God loves you, that he is Lord, that he is king of all things, you say, no, you're not. I am. Right? But God doesn't stop there. God pursues you. He gives you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn back to him. And time and time again, We reject it. We refuse it. That's what Jesus is getting at. The question isn't, why did a tower fall on those people? It's, why aren't towers falling on me every day? Right? You see that that perspective shift? And so Jesus says, look, your, your presuppositions are off. They're wrong. That's what Jesus loves to do. He loves to go and attack the question, the assumption under the question. And so now this is important because Jesus uh, is addressing the true presupposition, the Christian presupposition. Why does suffering happen and The answer is because of sin in general. Do do you see the nuance difference there? It's not particular sin. It's not your sin. Although there are instances in Scripture where a person's sin has caused God to immediately kill them or caused and brought judgment upon their house, their child. But in general, suffering is because of sin in general, not particular sin. I mean, think about, think about all the stories that, that we know. Uh, 
Joseph. Right? Like, why does all this happen to Joseph? Is it because of his sin? Is it because of his brother's sin? Well, yes and no. Right? Jonah, or not jo- Job. Is it because of Job's sin? Because of other people's sin? Well, yes and no. Again, these presuppositions, they come. And so Jesus says in this moment, neither, it's neither. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. And that, that but that, that little phrase there, is so important. Because we say, okay, so... The underlying truth is that there's suffering in the world because of sin. We know this because we see it in Genesis 3, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, what we see is that God created humanity to be the central piece of his creation. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened was it sent a rift that sent shockwaves throughout the universe. Nothing works because of sin, right? So we have weather patterns that that destroy everything. We have racism. We have broken homes. We have violence, war, all these things as a result. Why? Because the universe is is it's off center because of sin. Right? And so we make that we, we come to that place and we say, okay, let's accept that. Well what about God? Well that's a difficult and yet, not so difficult matter as well, because Lamentations 3 tells us that God does not delight in the affliction of his people. God's not happy in your affliction. And at the same time, Romans 8 tells us what? That all things work together for good. Right? It's the end of the Joseph story. His brothers are there. They want forgiveness. He's talking to them. And he says, look, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. It's it's, it's bigger than that. It's more complex than that. It's God working in suffering. And that's what Jesus says here. It's not particular sin. It's sin in general, but not just suffering alone. Suffering to an end. And that end is the glory of God. Of God. So that the works of God might be displayed in Him, in you, in us, particularly in our suffering. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered that your suffering is divinely permitted? But not just that, also controlled by the sovereign God. Suffering happens because of sin in general. God sovereignly permits suffering, and God is in control of suffering. Jesus doesn't stop there. Having said these things in verse 6, he acts. 
God is not indifferent to your hurt. He's not indifferent to your pain. In fact, he has acted. Now in this story, let's, let's look at how he acts because I think it's, it's quite interesting. It's not how I would have done it. <laughs> but you could probably say that about 100% of the things that Jesus does. It's not how I would have done it. Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud and then puts the mud on the blind man's eyes. All right, so blind persons, blind people, like the, though they, they may not see, they can still perceive light and various shades of light and darkness. And what does Jesus do? He covers his eyes with mud. Now he doesn't even have that. Instead of just saying, all right, you're healed. He plunges him further into darkness and says, now go walk in faith. Do what I say and see what happens. And that's how Jesus responds to our suffering. Walk in faith. Walk in faith sometimes, not always, sometimes. God's response to the suffering in your life is to let you go a little bit deeper. To let you sink a little bit further. So that the only option that you have is to turn your eyes to him in faith. And in that moment... He receives glory. And this is what's amazing, is that when God receives most glory, you receive what is best for you. So he covers his eyes with mud. He sends him to wash. And when he does, he comes back seeing. Not just light and dark. He sees everything. And then on top of that, Jesus says, Not only is that the model, the approach for this man, this is the approach for every man. And I know it because I'm taking it. Think about this for just a second. Take all your previous assumptions about suffering and apply them to Jesus. Was it that Jesus sinned? Of course not. What does the Bible tell us? That he was God but didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what did he do? He humbled himself to the, to, and, and be, made himself a man. He became a servant. What kind of a servant? Well, the prophets tell us a suffering servant. He suffered. He took on flesh. He suffered. He was tortured. And he died. And he descended into Sheol and darkness and death. There's that amazing picture of all things becoming dark when Jesus is on the cross as the Father is forsaking Him, turning His back on Him. Jesus is suffering at the depth, that the lowest depth, the truest form of suffering that can be suffered. Jesus plunges into that, right? He, he descends into death. He made himself obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that, and because of that, God highly exalted him. God lifted him up. Look, the the blind man, he's, he's covered in darkness. He sinks down into the water. He dips in. It's almost a baptism service, except for the 
Baptism hasn't been ordained yet in that manner. But he sinks into the water. He comes up alive. And in the same way, that is just a type of what Jesus is going to be doing in a short period of time. He descends to the grave. He rises in glory. And what the Bible tells us is that because of that, he became Lord. He became King. In other words, Jesus could not have received that crown without the cross. And so now as Christians, we have another understanding of suffering. Is that without the cross, there is no crown. That's why Paul can say, and with the cross, there most certainly will be a crown. If you are crucified with Christ, likewise, you will be resurrected with him. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that I consider the minor momentary affliction. And if you know Paul, (laughs) that's not minor. (laughs) You know, that's the momentary affliction that I'm feeling now to be nothing compared to the glory that is to come. That's why Paul can say the suffering that we endure now is bearing for us a great weight of glory, which is another C.S. Lewis book, a great weight of glory. We can suffer well because Jesus suffered. We can endure pain because Jesus endured pain. And as we do so, we know that we have the promise of glory. One day we will be glorified with him. And that's something else that now we have to add to our perspective because what I don't want you to hear is that there's going to come a point in your life where you will hit the lowest low that you can hit and then finally all will come clear. You may well suffer until the day you die. But then, like the blind man, Your eyes will be covered momentarily in darkness. And they will open up. And you'll see everything. Right? I was talking with Chad and Sarah about this last night. They're not here, but they know this is happening. But one day, Callie will have complete darkness. And a moment later, she will open her eyes to the most amazing sight that she's ever seen, that any of us will ever see. That's a promise. And you will too. You will too. Suffering does not have the last say because a sovereign God is controlled He's, he's, he's controlling all of it. He's working it all for his glory and for your good. So then you respond with faith and repentance, looking to the cross so that now when suffering comes, you don't, you're not hit over the head because you are romantic and you don't approach life as a cynic You don't 
feel an overbearing weight of guilt and you're not angry and bitter to the core with blame. Instead, you are filled with love and a quiet strength and a peace that passes all understanding because Christ endured the cross on your behalf because you're suffering suffering affects him. Do you get that? Yeah, in Romans 8, probably could have preached on that one too. How does it start? There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Suffering, pain, death does not have the last word because Christ has already died for it and he's already won. And so we look to a crucified king. We look to a suffering servant. We look to a risen Messiah. And that is why we come to the table. And that is how we'll come to the table. As those who live in the pain that is the already but not yet. That live between the first and second advent of Jesus. We come, we remember the suffering, the brokenness of the Messiah, and we commune with Him. We break with Him. We break with our brothers and sisters in Egypt and in Syria and in the children's hospital at Duke and all around the world. We break with them and we rejoice with them. Because Jesus has the last word. I'm going to pray and then we'll give some instructions about communion. Let's pray. Brothers and sisters, we are that blind man. It is because of what God has done for us and not what we do for him or anything that we could do that saves us. And so with those words in our minds, allow this blessing to wash over you today and for the rest of this week until we gather again in the Lord's house because it's good to be in the house with you all. And this is from Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever.